1 Kings chapter 8. I'm starting at verse 1. I'll read from 1 to 11, and then we'll skip down to verse 22 and finish at verse 30. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All of the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the the Levites carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they're still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised, your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I've built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be opened towards this temple night and day, this place of which you have said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) 
think speedy. Uh, let's pray for God's help as we turn together to his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the insight this passage gives to what you're up to in our world around us. We thank you for uh, the picture it gives to us of your plans for us. And I pray tonight that as we grasp afresh what you are doing in the world, as we understand your plans for us and for your people, that we would be re-energized, that we'd be excited about being part of your plan for the world. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Some months ago, I went to watch the film Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Uh, Given our vicar's love of fishing, I thought maybe going to watch a film about fishing would help me understand his slight obsession uh, with it. Uh, I learned two things about fishing. Uh, First of all, uh, fishing is very romantic. I did not know this about fishing. Um, That's not been my experience of fishing, but apparently, according to the film, uh, fishing is very romantic, at least the uh, the Hollywood version of fishing. Uh, The second thing I learned is that it is very hard to fish for salmon in the Yemen. (laughs) The Yemen is hot. It is dry, arid. Water is short. Just the opposite, I gather, for what you need for salmon to flourish. And of course, that's the whole point of the film. A man has a mad, unthinkable, impossible idea of creating a salmon fishing river in the Yemen of all places. It is an impossible plan. But as the film unfolds, gradually pieces fall into place. They find a water source, they they, they create a dam, and they they dig out a riverbed, and they ship in salmon. And there comes a point towards the end of the film when, amazingly, everything has fallen into place. Everything is set. But then comes that crucial moment when they are, are about to release the salmon into the river. And the big question is, will they swim? Will it work? Will this mad, unthinkable plan actually come to pass? You can just feel the tension in the air. Don't worry, I won't spoil the ending for you. Uh, The film just out recently, you can watch it on DVD. Uh, We're in the middle of a series looking at One Kings, and our chapter tonight, chapter 8, is a bit like that climactic moment in salmon fishing in the Yemen. Because in the background of chapter 8 of One Kings, there has been unfolding a plan. If you like, an impossible plan, an, an unthinkable plan. God's impossible plan, not to get salmon into a river in the Yemen, but rather to find a way for a holy, righteous, pure God to live with a sinful people. In fact, that question, how can God live with people, is not a bad summary of the whole Bible. See, ever since the first sin, when humanity was cut off from God, there has been a separation from God and humanity. Humanity cast out of the Garden of Eden, cast out of the presence of God. And the rest of the Bible is an unfolding plan of how God plans to do the unthinkable, to bring back together a sinful humanity with a holy God. 
And by the time we get to 1 Kings 8, amazingly, God has been working to bring the various pieces of the puzzle back together. He has made a people for himself out of a small family. He has made this people to prosper and to multiply. He's given them a land to live in, and he's given them a king to rule over them. And uh, finally, last week we heard that under this King Solomon, uh, God had built a wonderful, awe-inspiring temple right in the center of the new people. But now comes that crucial moment. Everything is in place. But will God really come and dwell with a sinful people? Will he come and live in the temple as is the plan? Will his plans come to pass? That is God's impossible plan. I want tonight to look at this uh, remarkable account of uh, what happens at the temple uh, and Solomon's prayer of dedication. And I want us to look at this passage under three headings as we go. Uh, My first heading is this. God's presence is the goal. God's presence is the goal. We've seen uh, in our series looking at 1 Kings how how God has done uh, amazing things in and through his people, establishing his king over the people, uh, helping King Solomon to build this truly amazing temple. But of course, the story doesn't stop at the end of chapter 7. Uh, Solomon doesn't sit back and go, oh, great, I've, I've built my palace, I've built a temple, I can sit back and relax, job done. Of course not, because all along, the whole point, the whole plan is God's presence. That is the goal of this whole story, God dwelling with his people. And so in 1 Kings 8, we see the final preparations being made for, for God to come and dwell with his people. And we can see it is an incredible moment in Israel's history. So Look down with me at verse 1 of chapter 8. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. In other words, Solomon gathers together all the leaders, all the important people of Israel, because he is expecting something amazing to happen on this day. And they gather the ark and they they bring it up uh, to the temple. Uh, The ark, which was the mobile symbol of God's presence with his people as they wandered through the desert, now being brought to its final resting place at the temple. You can feel the drama of of that moment in Israel's history. Look down at verse 5. as the ark uh, heads towards um, the temple. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. It is a moment of awesome holiness, uh, a special moment indeed as the ark arrives at the temple. And finally, we find in verse 10 what happens. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This is arguably the the high point of the Old Testament. 
God's presence filling the temple. The, the goal of God's plan to finally dwell amongst his people, to regain what was lost from the garden. And now here, under Solomon's kingship, in some sense, God has finally returned to live amongst his people. God's presence is the goal. And we see this goal as we glance forward through the rest of the scriptures, don't we? If we, if we just glance forward to, to, to the very end of the Bible, as we look at the, the picture of what lies in the future for God's people, we find in the new creation uh, a description of what to expect. And um, I'll just read from Revelation 21. Don't, don't turn to it now. But in Revelation 21, verse 3, uh, John says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. At the beginning, in the garden, God dwelt with his people. Then God was cut off from his people through sin. Here in 1 Kings 8, we see a, an insight into God's plans to dwell with his people. And finally, one day in Revelation, new creation, God will return fully to dwell with his people. God's presence is the goal for humanity throughout the scriptures. That should be our heart longing. There may be some here tonight who um, wouldn't consider themselves to be Christians. I hope you feel very welcomed to be here. I hope you find it helpful to be here. If you are to leave with just one thought tonight, then I hope it's this thought, which is that the message of Christianity is not about being a good person. It is not about following a set of rules and regulations, but it is about a relationship with God. The message of Christianity is, is a message of how God has gone about bringing a hostile world back into friendship with him. And the offer is nothing less than a relationship with God, being with God, God's presence for his people. And in 1 Kings 8, we see that the presence of God, being with God, is a place of joy, of fellowship, of prayer. It is what we were made for, to be with him. And this is, I think, also an important reminder for those of us who have been Christian many years. Because it is terribly easy as a Christian to get into a habit where we busy ourselves with uh, running around doing programs and events and being active. And we cram our diaries full of all kinds of things. But we forget that the ultimate goal of it all is God's presence, being with God. The question I've been thinking about myself this week as I've been looking at 1 Kings 8 is this. How much time, how much energy, how much of my headspace do I devote to being in God's presence, to, to just um, being with God, talking to him, praying to him, hearing from him, just being in relationship with him, enjoying him as my heavenly father. And how much time do I spend running around being busy and forgetting that the goal is God's presence? For Solomon, the goal wasn't um, bricks and mortar and wood and gold and bronze. No, the goal of the whole project, the whole plan, was for God to come and dwell with his people. That's our first heading from 1 Kings 8. The, 
presence of God is the goal. The second heading is this, the problem with God's presence. When I was much younger, I used to get um, rather confused at church. I got quite annoyed, actually, when, when the minister would say, well, why don't we all st- stop and, and pray to God ourselves? And I used to think, well, how can a room of 200 people all have a conversation with God at once? How can God possibly hear all 200 conversations? Either uh, God doesn't hear anyone, or he hears one person at a time. How can God do that? Or to put that question a different way, how can a person in Oxford pray to God at the same time as someone in China? It doesn't seem to make sense, at least not to me when I was much younger. Or put it another way, how can God be both transcendent and personal, immense and intimate? That is the problem with God's presence. Not that there's anything wrong with God's presence, but trying to understand that dilemma of how can God be both transcendent and personal. And I think that is, that is the question that Solomon is grappling with as we turn now to look at his prayer. As Solomon steps back and looks at what God has done, he's filled the temple. Solomon is grappling now, well, well where is God? What does it mean for God to, to somehow dwell in his temple? And I think Solomon is, in a sense, puzzled. So on one hand, he says in, in verse 13, he says, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So on one hand, Solomon acknowledges God has come to dwell in this temple. And yet later on in his prayer, look down with me at verse 27, Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. In other words, where is God? Where is God's presence? On one hand, at this huge moment in Israel's history, Solomon senses and sees God's glory has filled the temple. And yet, on the other hand, Solomon knows that even the highest heavens cannot contain God. And so he grapples with this question, the, the problem of God's presence. Where, where is God? And I think we sense here that, that Solomon knows that this physical temple is not the final answer that God will give to his people about how God will dwell with his people. I think Solomon senses there is more to come. There is a fuller answer that awaits his people. The problem with God's presence. As we glance forward to the New Testament, we do find God's answer. Remember those famous words in John 1 that we say at Christmas time. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. In the person of Jesus Christ, God becomes human so that we may see him, God himself on earth. But then the story goes on even further. Remember Pentecost, the early Christians gathered together praying. And then a violent wind came from heaven, poured out by the risen Lord Jesus, and filled the house, and God's Spirit came upon all those gathered. And from that point onwards in God's history, God has poured out his Spirit on his people. God has come to dwell in his people. Paul talks about, in 1 Corinthians 6, that that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. God has made his dwelling 
in us. As God's people, we are also his temple, gathered here tonight, being built up into a temple. The problem of God's presence is, I think, in some sense, answered by the New Testament. God has poured out his spirit into our hearts that we may know him personally, but also remember he is transcendent and above us. And of course, one day we will see him face to face in the new creation. I was reminded this week of some words um, that Peter Parker used to explain his new life as Spider-Man. I don't normally turn to Spider-Man for my theology, um, but I think at this point, uh, his, uh, his perspective on life is helpful. Uh, remember those words um, that Peter Parker uses. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. Peter Parker knew that he had been given something special, that he had become Spider-Man, and that he, ha- he was obliged to use his new powers to, to help those in need, to make a difference. And when we look at 1 Kings 8, and we see the great drama, the, the great anticipation, the great sacrifice, I think we are reminded afresh of just how precious it is that we have God's Spirit dwelling in our hearts. So holy and awesome is God's presence that we're told back in 1 Kings 8 verse 5 that you couldn't even number the, the number of animals sacrificed as the ark went towards the temple. Or, 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 or later on, we're told at the end of 1 Kings 8 that Solomon sacrificed 120,000 sheep and goats plus cattle as well. There is a sense of awe, of reverence, of severity at this moment in history. We're told the priests in verse 11 had to leave the temple when God's presence arrived. Great power, great holiness. And yet we discover now that we have God's very spirit dwelling in our hearts. We need to remember tonight afresh that we have been giving something incredibly precious. Something that Solomon couldn't even probably imagine fully. The thought of God's glory dwelling in our hearts. And there is a sense in which with great power comes great responsibility. We have been given much when we've been given the Spirit to live in our hearts. We are called to keep in step with the Spirit, to, to live uh, with Him, for Him, to, to um, not grieve Him, to seek to allow Him to transform us, to, to guide us. And uh, we heard uh, just at the start of our service, there may be some here tonight who have just sensed that uh, you have um, hardened your hearts to the, to the Spirit's work. Maybe you've just felt that you've drifted away from that living, active experience of Him in your life. Well, maybe tonight would be a great chance just to come forward to ask for prayer, ask for a, a renewed sense of His work in your life. Because the great promise of the Scriptures is that God has come and will come to live in his people by his spirit. That is uh, the problem with God's presence. Finally, very quickly, the problem with God's people. A friend of mine moved to Japan recently, and uh, we've tried to stay in touch. Uh, we've, uh, even though it's thousands of miles to Japan, we've uh, tried to chat on Skype. And uh, if you've ever spoken to someone long distance on Skype, it is a uncanny experience to sit there on your laptop um, 
speaking to someone as if they're there in front of you, but knowing they are thousands of miles away from you. It is a strange experience. On one hand, you are face-to-face, and yet, on the other hand, you're, you're relying on uh, a lot of wires and a, a switching station, substation, satellites to make the whole technology work. On one hand, face-to-face, and yet, on the other hand, relying on a whole system of communication to make it work. And as Solomon goes on to pray in 1 Kings 8, I think we see a picture of the temple acting like a switching station between heaven and earth, a a means of communication between a transcendent God and a a sinful people. So look down with me at, at verse 30. Solomon prays, Hear the supplication of your servants and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. In other words, the people were meant to look towards the temple, to pray towards the temple, and then when they prayed towards the temple, they were to know that God in heaven would hear their prayers. The temple acts as a relay station, a switching station between heaven and earth, allowing sinful people to communicate with a transcendent heavenly God. Solomon goes on to to list a whole number of sins that he knows that people will commit. And each time he says, when the people sin, may they pray to the temple, and may, O God, you hear from heaven and forgive their sins. That is the function of the temple, to be a form of mediation between heaven and earth, the, the means of God's people to speak to God even though they sin. That is the role of the temple. The problem with God's people is not so much that they will sin. Oh, they will sin. Solomon knows this. He prays knowing the people will sin. No, the problem here is that in the future in 1 Kings, the people don't look to the temple when they sin. If you know the story of one and two kings, we see a whole series of kings and people who who look anywhere but the temple when they sin. They don't look to the temple for God's help and God's rescue. They turn to high places and altars. They, They worship foreign gods. They turn to foreign nations. They look to chariots and horses for help. But they don't turn and look to the temple, the source of God's communication, of his relationship with his people. And that is the problem with God's people. They don't look to the temple for God's help. We saw last week how when Jesus comes and he begins his ministry, he is clearly the new temple, the the mediation between God and humanity, the one through whom we can pray to our heavenly Father, And the problem for the people of Israel is also our problem today. For so often we fail to look to the true temple for our rescue and our help. When we experience suffering, when when life goes wrong, when we feel distant from God, so often we don't look to the one place of mediation between God and man, Jesus Christ. Maybe we try to, to work harder or to grin and bear it. Maybe we turn to other sources of help. Maybe we turn to the comfort of our house or our bank accounts, our friends. God's people tend to look away from the temple, to turn away from 
the heavenly Father. The challenge tonight is to look back to the true temple, to seek that communion, that communication, that relationship with our heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And when we pray, when we seek his face, to be confident that he hears our prayers, will forgive our sins, and will turn and rescue us. God has a plan for the world which is unthinkable, impossible even, but it is a plan which he will complete when we arrive in the new creation, when we see Jesus face to face, we will dwell with God forever. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us when we spend more time and energy being busy and rushing around doing things and spend less time being with you, enjoying our relationship with you. Father, we thank you afresh for your wonderful faithfulness that you keep your promises, that you have made it possible for sinful humans to come into your presence. We thank you that despite our slow hearts, you are faithful and kind, and you give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.